Good morning, church. The age we live in has an interesting relationship with the concept of confidence. If someone is very confident in their political beliefs in our culture, confidence is a very bad thing. If someone is confident in how to fix your car, that is a great thing. If someone is confident in their theological views, it is considered arrogant and even prideful. If someone is confident in their ability to make your house more of an open concept for just the right amount of money, we are thrilled. About the only unanimous area where confidence is universally praised is in the realm of athletics. See, when the game was on the line, you never doubted who would take the winning shot in the 1990s for the Chicago Bulls. Who was it? It was Michael Jordan. Everyone on the team knew it. Michael Jordan knew it. The fans knew it. When the Falcons were up 28-3 in the Super Bowl, you never counted out the Patriots because of the confidence of Tom Brady. But what about when an athlete loses confidence? Consider Simone Biles from from just a few years ago. You might know Simone Biles as arguably the greatest gymnast ever to compete. However, during the the 2020 Olympics, Ms. Biles removed herself from competition because she lost confidence in her ability to compete in a safe and competitive manner. Luckily, she has regained her confidence, and we look forward to seeing her compete in the 2024 Olympics for Team USA. We can clearly see how important confidence is for an athlete. But what I want to ask you about this morning is, what about confidence for a Christian? What about confidence for a Christian? I want to propose to you this morning that God's desire is for you to walk in confidence as a Christian. Confidence. Now, I am not talking about self-confidence. I'm not talking about self-confidence. I'm talking about a deep, steadfast confidence in the Lord. If we're going to do what God has called us to do as Christians in this life, if we're going to cross the ocean and take Bibles to Uganda, leave our families behind, we're going to do all those things that Roger was just talking about in this community and in this church, if we're going to be parents who disciple children, friends, it will take a deep confidence in the Lord to do so. My main point this morning, kind of already said it, is this. God's desire for his people is for them to stand confident before him and confident in this world. God's desire for his people is for them to stand confident before him and confident in this world. Please open your Bibles to the book of Joshua as we continue this morning. I'm going to get mostly through chapter 8, and I will finish up chapter 8 the next time that I preach. Please follow along as I read, starting in verse 1. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear, and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city. But all of you remain ready, and I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us just, bef- uh, just as before, 
we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they're fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall, flee, shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush and, uh, uh, and lay between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent the night among the people. Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel before the people of Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush, in, in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And, and the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven. And they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people, for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them. So they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until, the, until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. It is a very cheery and encouraging story, isn't it? Very bright. I pray actually that it is this morning. So follow along as I as I preach this morning. See, at this point in our study in Joshua, can we just admit that Israel has had quite an eventful few days? They have entered into the promised land through Yahweh's parting of the Jordan River. All of the men of Israel who needed to be circumcised were circumcised. They celebrated the Passover together in the promised land. They ate of the produce of the land that they had waited so long to eat of. 
They marched around Jericho for nearly a week before overtaking the city completely and destroying the city and everyone in the city. You see, at this point, the people of Israel, they must have been on cloud nine. That is, until they experienced a colossal defeat last week against the people of Ai. They unexpectedly lost 36 Israelite men in the battle with Ai, which ultimately resulted in Israel retreating back to their camp. Of course, you you might recall from last week that this was because there was sin in the midst of Israel. You see, a man named Achan coveted what belonged to the Lord and ultimately stole a cloak, silver, and some gold from the Lord. Because of his sin, the Lord held the whole nation accountable. As the Lord brought judgment against them, Joshua and the elders were in mourning. The people of Israel's hearts, they, they, they melted within them. No longer were they confident. No longer were their hearts burning within them. They knew that the Lord's hand was against them. They saw it very clearly that the Lord's anger was burning against them. Therefore, the only option they had if they wanted to live was to trust the Lord by putting Achan to death and his family and all of his possessions, burning them. You see, the Lord used the people of Israel to bring judgment to Achan And we saw in chapter 7, verse 26, that the Lord turned from his burning anger. He turned from his burning anger towards the people of Israel. Can you imagine in that moment? Can you imagine how that must have felt? I I mean, genuinely think about it. Put yourselves in their shoes. The God of all the universe's anger was actively burning against his people. And then it wasn't. Let that sink in. Just consider for one moment that that God's anger was not invisible. God's anger wasn't just a concept. It, It wasn't philosophical. It wasn't just an idea. It wasn't abstract in the slightest. They literally saw God working against their nation. You see, his judgment was received loud and clear until it wasn't. Until it wasn't. You see, they knew what it was like to receive God's judgment and then experience the joy of no longer being under the judgment of God. Of course, this is the story of every Christian. This is the story of every Christian. See, if your faith is in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, you have gone from death to life. From orphans to children of God. From recipients of God's wrath to recipients of God's blessings in Jesus Christ. We have gone from being God's enemies to being reconciled to God. What a Savior. And so this morning, I want us to answer this question. What should the fact that we have been reconciled to God produce in our hearts? What does God desire to produce in our hearts as a result of being reconciled to Him? I have two points this morning. One, Reconciliation should result in a confidence before God. Reconciliation should result in a confidence before God. You see, after the burning anger of God is turned away from his people in chapter 7, what are the first three words that God speaks to his people in chapter 8? What does he say? He says, do not fear. Do not fear. Are there three better words that God could speak to his people than this? Do not fear. 
Now, if you've been following along in Joshua, you'll, you'll know that this is an interesting imperative from, from the Lord because the Lord has already multiple times explicitly called his people to do what? To fear. See, you, you might remember from, from Joshua 4.24 that the Lord's desire in bringing the nation into the promised land by parting the Jordan River was what? So that they would fear him forever. Forever. So what context here is the Lord calling the Israelites not to fear? And what context is he calling the Israelites to fear? Well, as, I, as I've mentioned before, he does desire for his people to fear him. However, this isn't a fear that, that runs and hides from God like Adam did. This is a fear that strikes all into the hearts of his people as they see God clearly for who he is. We recognize just how holy he is and how insignificant that we are. We see how righteous he is and how wretched we are. We see how powerful he is and how powerless we are. We see the Lord for who he is. And as we see the Lord, we don't approach him lightly or casually. Jesus is not, as the popular shirt says, our homeboy. He is our king. He is our Lord. We, we, we approach him reverently. We approach him with fear. However, our hearts do desire him as we see him. We desire fellowship with him and we desire to be near to him. And as we gaze upon his justice and as we gaze upon his wrath, what we desire is we desire to obey him. See, th this is more than simple respect and adoration. It is truly a good and righteous fear. Yet, there is a sense in which God calls his covenant people not to fear as well. Not to fear. See, God's covenant people do not need to fear God's wrath. It's a good place for an amen. So I alluded to this a little bit last week. God's true covenant people will never, ever receive God's wrath. Ever. Now, why would that be the case here in Joshua verse 8, or Joshua 8, 1? Because their sin had been atoned for by the blood of Achan. Leviticus 17.11, it says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Hebrews 9.22 also tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. See, the wrath of God had turned from the Israelites because of the shedding of Achan's blood and his family's blood. Now, was Achan's death enough to atone for the, for the sins of the people of Israel forever? Of course not. They would have to wait for the Messiah for that. However, for this particular egregious sin that took place within the nation, it did momentarily atone for that sin. Therefore, this issue was behind them. God had forgiven them. God would not rub it in their faces. He would not continue to threaten them about it. They would need, of course, to, to walk by faith. This would involve the continuation of, of, of sacrificing bulls and goats to make atonement for the sins of Israel. But as far as the idolatry that took place in Ai at this moment, they needed not fear the wrath of God, the judgment of God. We must understand this, Christians. When sin has been atoned for, we need not fear. When sin has been atoned for, we need not fear. See, this is why Paul writes this in Romans 8.1. You can turn there if you like. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Is there, better, is there any better truth in the entire Bible for Christians? That might be the best truth in the Bible. 
You see, Paul says it so definitively, and he says it so straightforwardly. He doesn't offer an asterisk. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None, friends. Not decreased condemnation. Not partial condemnation. No condemnation. None. Ever. You see, now, now most of us Christians in this church, we, we know this verse. We've heard this verse. We have this verse memorized. But how often do we meditate on its implications? There is no more guilty verdict for those who are in Christ Jesus. The covenant relationship between God and those in Christ is no longer in danger of being jeopardized. We are never at risk of losing our salvation. There is no charge or accusation that Satan or any man could bring before us that would change our status before God. God will not change his mind. Christians will never sniff hell. We will never experience God abandoning us. The Holy Spirit will never leave us. God will never stop being for us. God will never be opposed to us. This is true when we wander into sin. This is true when we wander into doubt. This is true when we give in to the flesh. This is true when we rest in our own wisdom. This is true of us today. This is true of us tomorrow. This is true of us on our deathbed. This is true of us for all eternity future. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, what? We have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Why? Because of his great grace. Because his condemnation has passed over us in Jesus Christ. How is this possible? Well, Paul gives us the answer as he continues in, in Romans 8, 2 through 4. He, he writes this. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Friends, Christ did what we could not do. He did what bulls and goats could not do. He did what the law could not do. He did what Adam and Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and David and Solomon and Peter and John the Baptist could not do. Christ perfectly and finally achieved God's righteous standard for his people. See, Christ walked this earth for 33 years and never sinned once. He actively obeyed God's perfect law. And then he offered himself to make atonement for our sins. And through his sacrificial death, Jesus took our sin so that we might take his righteousness. See, through Jesus, the righteous requirement of the law was fulfilled for us and in us. God's wrath is completely satisfied by the death of his son, Jesus. Now back up. Don't miss the, the end of Romans 8.1. This is true of those who are in Christ Jesus. We've trusted alone in him for salvation. See, they have rejected any and all efforts to try to appease the wrath of God on their own. They recognize that there is nothing that they could do on their own to satisfy God's wrath. They could never work hard enough to earn God's favor. They recognize that that is only found in Christ alone. They recognize that on their own, they stand condemned before God because of their sin. Therefore, they desire to forsake their sinfulness and rebellion towards God, and recognize Jesus' lordship over them. They desire to die to their old ways and to walk in newness of life with Jesus. This 
is a Christian, friends. It is only for such people who have trusted in Christ that there is no condemnation, period. No one else. Then notice the next imperative back in Joshua 8 that God gives the Israelites through Joshua in verse 1. He says, be not dismayed. Be not dismayed. Do not fear and be not dismayed. You see, God's desire and command for his people was for them not to be discouraged and not to be faint-hearted. You see, we, we can imagine how easy it would have been for them to have, have felt discouragement after all that happened in the previous chapter. Can you imagine walking in that discouragement after what just happened? We can see how easy it would be for them to, to walk around with a deep sense of guilt. It would have been easy for them to sit there and, and wonder if God was, was going to just continually strike them dead for another Israelite sin. However, this is not what God wanted for them. God did not want them to walk around insecure or discouraged. You see that? Rather, God wanted his people to remember his faithfulness and his covenant love towards them and to be encouraged, to not be dismayed. See, as the Israelites' sin had been atoned for, God was about to send them into battle, and he wanted them to be confident as they went. They did not need to be dismayed in thinking that God would leave them or that the same fate awaited them as the last time they went to battle with Ai. Christians, did you know that God's desire isn't for Christians to walk around dismayed today also? Did you know that? God does not want you walking around dwelling on all of your past sin that you've repented of and brought to Christ. He doesn't. He doesn't want you walking around with your tail between your legs as if you could never do anything to please him. God does not save us to live discouraged lives because of our past sin. God saved us to live joy-filled, happy lives. He saved us to live secure lives. Now, I'm not talking about happy and secure as the world would describe it. Happiness and security in money or in health or popularity or the right politicians are in office or, or you're going to have a good marriage. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. Instead, God's desire is for us to not be dismayed as we look to Jesus Christ and what he has done. That's where our confidence is found. That's where our joy is found. Consider what is written in, in Hebrews chapter 10. You can also turn there. Hebrews 10, 19 through 23. We read this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he was promised is faithful. See, the writer of Hebrews is noting that we have confidence to approach God because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. His death made those who trust in him holy and able to have true fellowship with God. See, this phrase in Hebrews, the holy place, refers to the holy place and the holy of holies where God dwelt in the tabernacle and Solomon's temple in the old covenant. And if you know anything about that, you know that the, that the high priest could only enter the holy of holies once a year in order to make atonement for the sins of God's people. And he could only enter the Holy of Holies after making atonement for his own sin by blood sacrifice. Yet, because of Jesus' death making atonement for our sins, friends, we have confidence to enter the most holy place over and over and over and over again. In fact, for those in Jesus Christ, 
we have become the temple where the Lord God dwells. See, the Holy Spirit truly and really does dwell within us. Again, is that not the most incredible news in the world, Christians? God doesn't just dwell among his people. God dwells in his people. So how should we respond to such great news? Well, verse 22 says this, that we should draw near. We should draw near. We shouldn't flee or avoid God. We should draw near. And how should we draw near? With our, with our tail between our legs, wondering if God will zap us? No. We draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Said differently, we should authentically draw near to God in full confidence of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. Is this self-confidence? No. Is this confidence in our character? No. This is confidence in Jesus' death on the cross. You see, we don't approach God looking at the, at the ground like, like a kid who's too afraid to ask his daddy a question. That's not how we approach God. We can come in full confidence because of the Lord. Because we're good enough? No. But because Jesus and his sacrifice was good enough for us. And not only that, but we can draw near totally pure. We can draw near totally pure. Our hearts, according to the writer of Hebrews, has been, they have been made clean. Totally clean. Our bodies have been washed. We do not need to walk around with a constantly guilty conscience because of our past sin. Why? Because Jesus will just forget about it? No. Because Jesus will overlook it? No. But because Jesus paid the price for it. It is paid for. As we are justified in Christ, the Lord God sees us just as we have never sinned. He sees us clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We have been healed. Our sin has been paid for totally, period. See, friends, when my mom was sick with, with cancer, like most people with cancer, she received chemotherapy with, with the hopes that it would take care of her problem that the chemotherapy, that, that it would take care of the cancer, that it, that it would kill the cancer. As most of you know, it, it wasn't the Lord's will to heal her. So the doctors, ultimately, they, they placed her in hospice care. When she was placed in the hospice care, they very clearly explained to her that the purpose of hospice care was not to continue to treat her illness, but to provide comfort to her as she was about to die. See, hospice would not help her get better. It would just help her feel better as she approached death. It would simply numb her to the pain and help her sleep a little better through the late stages of cancer. Hospice, in a sense, is waving the white flag. See, too many people, they treat Jesus like hospice care. We all know we're going to die. Therefore, we add a little Jesus or a little religion to our lives in an effort to remain comfortable until we die. We hope that a few positive thoughts about Jesus can help us get through life's biggest problems and ease the pain of suffering that we encounter as we continue to age. Friends, Jesus does not provide pain management. Jesus provides through the cross full healing. Through Jesus' death on the cross, he actually came and solved our biggest problem, our sin. He actually gives us eternal life. He actually makes us holy. He actually paid the penalty of our sin. He actually made us friends of God. He didn't provide painkillers while our body rots away. He provided redemption, sanctification, and his saving grace. Through Christ, we are truly healed. Is there any better news than the fact that Jesus has actually solved our biggest problem in life and the next? We have been reconciled to God, Christians. What a Savior. What an encouragement this should bring to our hearts. What godly confidence this should bring to our hearts. Point two, 
Reconciliation should result in great confidence as we walk in this world. Reconciliation should result in great confidence as we walk in this world. Because Jesus was on the side of the Israelites and his favorable hand was upon them, he caused the Israelites to go back into battle with their enemies, the people of Ai. God told Joshua to take all of the warriors and head to Ai. Why? Because God promised that he had given the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land into the hands of the Israelites. God's will for the Israelites was for them to bring complete judgment on the people and the city of Ai, just like they did at Jericho. The only difference this time between Jericho and Ai is that the Israelites got to do what? They got to keep some of the stuff. Bad news for Achan, right? God even laid out a specific strategy for the Israelites. They would defeat the people of Ai by ambushing them. It reads like a really good war story, a really good battle strategy. I'm not a great reader out loud, so you probably didn't get it, but go, I have Tom Gregory. He's a, Tom Gregory's a good reader. Go, go, read, go read this, this text with, with Tom Gregory, and you'll just see great, great military strategy. It reads well. You see, of course, Joshua, with his strategy, you know, he obeys the Lord. In verses 3 through 4, he gathered 30,000 men and told them to wait behind the city to ambush it. While the 30,000 men waited behind the city, Joshua and the rest of the warriors would approach the city to look like they might attack it and then run away from the armies of Ai just like they did the last time back in chapter 7. Joshua's hope was that the armies of Ai would follow the fleeing army of Israel and that this would draw any protection away from the city. At that point, while the city remained unprotected, the 30,000 men who were waiting behind the city would ambush the city and the Lord had promised to give them certain victory. Therefore, they would set the city on fire. They would, they would devote the city of Ai to complete destruction. Like the city of Jericho, because of the sin of the people of Ai, the certain wrath and judgment of God would come upon that city. See, and then we see in, in verses 10 through 23, we see that the plan could not have unfolded more perfectly. Joshua took 5,000 men and set them in ambush between the cities of Bethel and Ai. At that point, Joshua and his warriors approached the city of Ai. Just as they planned in verse 14, as, as soon as the king of Ai saw uh, Israel approaching, every male in the city, including the king, left the city to do battle with Israel. So then Israel, they pretend to retreat into the wilderness. Then we see that every man, not only in Ai, but also in Bethel, followed the Israelites into the wilderness. Every man in these cities, they, 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 they leave their post, they leave their city, they're like, we got them. You see, and verse 17 points out this, that Ai was left wide open. Wide open. It was vulnerable to attack. It was at that point where the Lord told Joshua to stretch out the javelin in his hand toward the city of Ai, and the Lord would give the city over to the Israelites. It was the Lord alone who would win the battle for them, not weapons. As soon as Joshua raised his javelin, those who were hiding in ambush, they took the city. They literally captured the city. They literally set it on fire, and they literally watched it burn. As soon as they started to burn it, all of a sudden the text tells us the smoke began to rise. Then verse 20 tells us that the men of Ai saw the smoke. They looked back at their city and their homes. They saw it burning. Everything they worked for, gone. Their wives and their, their children, gone. Not only that, but the, the Israelites that had been retreating, they turned back around and began doing battle with them. They could not even turn back to go home because their whole city was under Israeli control. In other words, these enemies of God were surrounded by the people of God on every side. And the text tells us that not a single citizen of Ai survived, except for who? The king. Verse 25 tells us that 12,000 people 
died in Ai that very day. Like Jericho, every inhabitant was devoted to complete destruction. It's amazing when you think about it, from start to finish, how the king of Ai, he saw all of this. He saw the city burned. He saw his citizens killed. He saw the plundering of their goods. You see, in their first battle with the people of Israel, the king was caught off guard. They fought for their lives. And they were content to simply drive away the Israelites and to kill 36 of them. They were content. Yet the second time, the people of Ai were confident. They drove them away the first time. They would do it again. Only this time, the armies of Ai and Bethel followed them into the wilderness. They were content on finishing the job. They were content on killing the people of Israel. You see, they thought this, that all of those other groups in the past, like Egypt or Jericho, they couldn't handle the God of Israel. But the people of Ai, the king of Ai, oh, we can handle the Lord God. We can handle the people of God. So the king waged war against the God of Israel and against Israel. And what happened to the king that waged war against God? He was hung on a tree. After he died, his body was thrown at the entrance to the city and stones were thrown on it just like they did Achan. See, this giant heap of stones was a reminder to the world of what happens to those who oppose God. Complete judgment. Now, I've talked a lot through Joshua so far about the judgment of God and its ramifications towards those who reject Christ in almost every single sermon so far. However, I want us to consider the truth and its ramifications for Christians today. We've talked about its ramifications for those who reject God. I want to talk about its ramifications for Christians. See, God doesn't just, just expect us to be sad that his enemies will receive judgment. He doesn't expect us to just feel compassion that his enemies will receive judgment. The fact that God's enemies will receive judgment should give disciples of Jesus Christ confidence in this life as well. I want us to consider this angle. See, Jesus told his disciples in John 15. John 15, Jesus says this, if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Do you know that, Christians? Do you know that the world hates you? Do you expect that the world hates you? Or do you expect that they're going to love you? Jesus said this, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Friends, we must expect, not just intellectually understand, we must expect that the world is going to hate us in this life. That should be an expectation that you have. We must fully expect persecution in this life. Why? Because our sovereign king told us it would come. If they persecuted him, they will persecute us. Paul reiterated the same point in his epistle to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. You know this, he said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Some few? How many? All. If you desire, friends, to be a faithful Christian, you will be persecuted. For some, it is intense persecution. 
For others, it is minor. However, the Bible tells us that all who desire to be a faithful disciple of Jesus will experience some persecution. You might say, Brian, I haven't experienced any, any persecution. Friend, start sharing your faith. Start calling for repentance. Start calling for biblical reformation in the church. Start advocating for biblical truth. Start living with biblical conviction. And then you'll experience some persecution. Sit back and never mention Jesus. Live in such a way that your, co-worker, your co-workers or your classmates don't even know that you're a Christian. Not so much. That's also called not a faithful Christian. Not an obedient Christian. Jesus assumes and commands that his disciples would be obedient. Most of the persecution that we experience in this country, friends, it's fairly tame compared to what our brothers and sisters around the globe are facing. According to a website called opendoors.org, in Nigeria, it is common for Christians' villages to be raided by Boko Haram, where families are torn apart and often thrown into human trafficking for following Jesus. Christians who leave their Muslim upbringings and they're completely abandoned and considered dead by their families. On the website, a Nigerian woman named Agnes said, we were working in the fields of our farm when armed men approached us. They kidnapped three of us. They later killed my two friends and I am the only one left living for following Jesus. In Kazakhstan, Open Doors also notes this. When somebody becomes a Christian, they're at a high risk of being locked up by their families, kept from any other Christians, verbally and physically abused, and potentially cut off from their family and community. The authorities monitor and raid meetings of Christian converts and may arrest and imprison their church leaders. The authorities raid Christian gatherings and can fine, detain, and imprison believers, particularly Christian leaders. It is estimated that 6,000 Christians around the globe were killed for their faith last year. 2,100 churches were attacked. 4,500 Christians were detained. See, these are real Christians, friends, who knew the risks of walking faithfully with the Lord, but they did it anyway. I admire such Christians. I almost hate to read about such Christians because their boldness and faithfulness makes me feel like a chump. How do they do it? How do these Christian fathers raise their children to faithfully fear the Lord alone in such societies as this? How do elders remain faithful to lead the church? How do wives continue to support the leadership of their God-fearing husbands? When family members are being literally killed for following Jesus, where do they look? They look to passages like Joshua 8. And they know that God will bring complete justice to all those who oppose him. God will bring complete justice to all of those who harm God's people. They know that in the end, God wins. In the end, God's people, they win. See, there may be days or seasons where it looks like the world is winning. For a moment, it looked like AI might devour Israel completely. For a moment... In the future, it looks like Babylon would devour Israel completely. See, for a moment, it looked like Rome and Israel would devour Jesus. But know this, every time, our God stands undefeated. In fact, God is not phased at all by those that hate him. Our God is not phased 
He is not moved one inch by people who raise their fists at him. He doesn't break a sweat. He doesn't alter plans. He doesn't look at the current state of our country full of people who rage against him and become worried. He is not rattled by the many abortion bills that were passed in in many state legislatures throughout this week. He is not taken aback by the many, many, many false teachers in our country that are filled to the brim with people looking for man-centered theology. He is not confounded at a culture that praises what the Bible calls vile and, and sinful. He is not confused by Wall Street greed, Hollywood fornication, and idolatry on Capitol Hill. In fact, do you want to know how God responds to such fools that rail against him? Psalm 2 says that God laughs. He laughs. He laughs at those who shake their fist at him. Why? Because the Lord Jesus will break them with a rod of iron. He will dash them to pieces. You see, there comes a day when each and every one of us who are Christians, with our very eyes, we will see all of God's enemies under his feet. See, Revelation 19, you can turn there, describes exactly how the Lord Jesus Christ will treat his enemies when he returns. He will not come to offer mercy. He will come to wage war. Revelation 19, it says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it, it's called faithful and true. That's who? Jesus. And in righteousness, he judges and he makes war. His eyes are are, are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which it is called is the word of God. Do you see this picture of our warrior king? The saint frail Jesus. The saint effeminate Jesus. This is Jesus ready to wage war. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. I believe this is the people of God who've been saved and given white robes, who are ready to strike down the nations with God when Jesus returns. From Jesus' mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. You see, he will not come for one city, one people. He will come for all of those who reject him, everyone who opposes him. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. Well, that sounds like a good supper. Let's read more about it. To eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and the riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. There'll be none. Look how many Instagram followers people have in this world. I don't, I don't care how, how high you rise politically. I don't care how, how, you might be the most powerful man in the world. Should you oppose God, you receive his wrath. And I saw the beast. And the kings of the earth, with their armies gathered to make war against him, who was sitting on the horse and against his army, the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image, 
These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds gorged with their flesh. Look at the picture here. All of these mighty kings with their mighty armies, their flesh wasn't gorged by an atom bomb, but by birds that the sovereign Lord Jesus sends down to devour them. What a mockery of their power. What a mockery of the fact that they rage against the Lord. See, one thing we must understand about the book of Revelation is that it was meant to be a blessing to those who read it especially the early church, who was immensely struggling with massive persecution. And truths like the ones we read in Revelation 19 that are consistent with the way God handled God-haters in Joshua 8, they are meant to be encouraging for God's people. Why? Because we know this, that a life following after Jesus Christ, it never fails. It never fails. It always satisfies. It always pays off. Justice is always satisfied. You see, it might result in the loss of our earthly lives, but in the end, we get to reign with Jesus. It might result in the loss of our earthly income, but our end prize is the Lord Jesus. It might result in the loss of our reputation before men, but in the end, God will identify his chosen people as well done, good and faithful servants. See, just like the Israelites could faithfully walk into mission at the battlefield, knowing that they had certain victory, we can live confident and obedient lives to Jesus, knowing this, that we will one day reign with him. As I close, I want us to see that being reconciled to God, it really and truly does change a person. See, God doesn't intend to have some Christians who are confident in Jesus' work on their behalf and who are living confidently on mission, while there are other Christians who are constantly doubting Jesus' work and who are afraid of persecution and the culture and failure. Not God's will. God's will for you, Christian, is to be confident. Not self-confident. We're talking about a deep confidence in God. Confidence isn't just fuel for the Christian life. It is the Christian life. It is the Christian life. See, God wants you walking around convinced of the sufficiency of what Jesus accomplished on the cross for you. He doesn't want you succumbing to works righteousness. He doesn't want you wallowing in self-pity over the sin and your past that you've already confessed and repented of. He doesn't want you constantly doubting your salvation. He wants you to look to the cross and walk in the confidence that it produces. This is God's will for your life, Christian. God wants you completely confident of the victory that is in Jesus Christ. God wants you convinced that in the end, you will win because you are in Jesus Christ. God wants you convinced that all the vain pleasures of this world will burn when Jesus Christ comes. God wants you convinced that God will one day judge the wicked. God wants you convinced that even if persecution comes, it will all be righted in the end by Jesus. God wants you convinced that suffering for the gospel, it is indeed worth it. And if you're convinced of such things, how then will you live? See, such truths will massively change your life. You will joyfully give your life to the glory of God in this world. You will joyfully seek to obey God and turn from your sin. You will joyfully pursue knowing the Lord Jesus Christ through the scriptures. You will joyfully share the gospel and take it to the nations. 
You won't waste your life on dumb, frivolous things. You will live for what really matters, but only if you're convinced. Only if you're convinced. And that is what I want for our church. More importantly, this is what the Lord God wants for our church. Lord, give us steadfast confidence in your holy name.